uh, it is good to be um, with you uh, today. I'm glad that you are here, and I'm excited about uh, the message which I get to uh, proclaim to you today. Um, it has been uh, one, of the, one of the greatest struggles in preparing a sermon that I have been, been through. It took me a long time to uh, put this uh, together, um, but I am excited about where, where God has me this morning and what he has for me to say to you. So um, as we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we uh, thank you for uh, your son, Jesus Christ, who uh, stood in our place on that cross. Um, he bore our sin and absorbed your wrath so that we might um, enjoy and love and in life uh, experience communion and fellowship with you and with each other. Um, we ask that you would uh, humble our hearts before your word. Um, may we hear what you have to say. May we submit uh, our minds and our, our desires and our actions to it. Um, may by your spirit, uh, your, your powerful spirit, uh, may it transform us through the preaching of your word. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series on John. Um, last week, uh, we were in the first part of John chapter 13. And so this is the uh, third sermon, actually, in this uh, chapter, in this new uh, part. If you were around the church at Blue Ridge a while ago, um, last year, from January up until uh, through August, I believe, um, we were in the book of John. We got through the first 12 chapters, and now we are walking through the rest of it, all right? And so we are on week three um, in John chapter 13, um, verses 21 through 30 is where we will be. Um, when, I, when I study the scriptures, I have two uh, primary primary aims, whether I'm studying it for myself or um, whether I am uh, studying it to preach. The, the method, the, the, the aim stays the same, right? You, you want to kind of learn two things from the text. What what does it say? I want to be able to understand it. I want to be able to explain what the text is saying. And then I want to I understand what is the author trying to accomplish in me? Right? What is the author wanting me to feel? How should I feel? Should I, re, should I repent? Right? Should I feel sorrowful? Should I feel awe? Um, should I be encouraged? Right? So, so as I'm studying the scripture, I want to see what the text is saying. And I, I want to identify what, what effect is that supposed to have uh, upon me. And, and, and as we come to uh, a text like this, um, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to discern that because as you'll see in a minute, um, this text is just narrative, right? Um, from verses 21 to 30, um, there, is, there is absolutely no comment on the meeting, right? So from, from 21 to 30, it is just, here's what happened. Here's what was said, and here's what took place. Um, there is no commentary about what I should think about it, and there's no commentary about how I should be affected uh, by it. And so it presents a, a little bit of a challenge. And so we have to go um, outside of the 21 through 38 to understand it and to see how it's supposed to affect us. Right? And, and I, I say that to say because I say that to say this, when we do that, we need to understand there's a couple of dangers, right? Um, one of those dangers is that it, it exists in the fact that when I, when I move outside of 21 through 30 or when I move outside of the text I'm looking at, I'm going to get my information. I'm going to gain my understanding from somewhere. Right? And we tend to look to three uh, places to get our understanding, right? So, so you've probably, you probably experienced this in your own uh, maybe study of the scriptures um, or as you've heard somebody uh, teaching, right? I read something that doesn't, I don't understand it, right? You, you, maybe you've been there, right? And so I'm going to pull from somewhere. I'm going to look somewhere to understand the text, right? To see why, what is its significance? I'm going to look to one of three sources. One of those sources is I'm going to look to myself, right? Um, this text makes me feel this way, or, or I've got something going on in my life, right? And, and this phrase or this thing kind of stood out to me, and it, it spoke to me, right? We, 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 we experience this maybe in, in small groups sometimes, right? Or, or in Bible studies, where we, what, what did you learn, right? And, and, we, and, we, and we kind of take, we kind of put our meaning in the text based on where we are, right? We look to ourselves. Another place we look is to tradition, right? So, so as God began to transform my thinking and my theology over the last 10 years or so, one of the things I realized was, hey, I thought that text was saying something completely different than what it actually was saying. I, I was looking to tradition to tell me what to think about and tell me how to understand the importance of, of the text. And then the third place we can go, which is the, the appropriate, the right place, is to Scripture, 
I'm, I'm, I'm to look to the scriptures and its authority to tell me what I'm supposed to think about the text. So when I look outside of verses 21 through 30, I should be looking to scripture to inform and command and have authority over my thinking and my understanding. This is crucially important. It's crucially important because it helps. It helps. I know I'm taking a few minutes here, but it's a good reminder for my role and your role as people in the church. See, my job is to explain the text to you and tell you how you should feel and what, how it should affect you. Your job as the people of God is to make sure that I'm telling you what the text says. You have a responsibility to listen well, and I have a responsibility to teach well. This is important because the, 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 the passage that we're going to deal with is, is a very difficult passage. Okay? It, it deals with some things that are very challenging. Right? And so what I have to do is I have to go and tell you, hey, this is what's happening, and i got to show you from the text, and you've got to be able to go, hey, this is, this is of Scripture or this is not. And if it is, we are to, we are what? We're, we're to submit underneath of it. Right? And if it's not, we're to correct and reject it. And so we've got, a, we've got a big task here today, and that is to hear well and to make sure that what is being said is, is from the scriptures so that we can submit ourselves under it. And so as we move forward, we, we, need to, we need to be reminded sometimes of what we're doing here. We can't be passive listeners and careless preachers. We must, we must do these things, do these things well. And so with that, I'm going to call your attention um, to the text, John chapter 13. Verse 21 through 30, he says this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And if you remember, Jesus is now, he's, he's continuing a conversation in which he's eating with uh, his disciples. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We, we turn to uh, this, this text here, and as I, as you, as I told you, right, there, there's not a lot of comment. We, we see a conversation going on. Um, I, I sometimes get... Uh, interrupted while watching uh, football on the television by commotion down my uh, hallway, right? And it comes from my little girls' rooms, right? And so they're down there playing, and they're doing what they're supposed to do, and all of a sudden there's, there's commotion, right? And so sometimes rather than just barging into the room, right, I, I make my way down the room, and I listen. I'm listening to the conversation to see if I can figure out what the commotion is, but then sometimes I realize I give up after a few moments just by listening to the conversation that I've come too late, right? It's just, a bunch of, it's just a bunch of talking. I don't have any context. And so unless I, unless I use my parental right to bust into the room unannounced, okay, um, unless I enter into the room and start to interrogate, right, I'm never going to be able to understand what they're saying to each other because I just don't, I just don't have the context. Right? That's what kind of is happening here. We are busting into the conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and it, we, just by listening without any commentary, without asking any questions, we, we won't be able to understand the importance and the significance of what is going on here. And so I must direct our attention um, to the verses previous, right? the verses that come just uh, before this. Um, they come from chapter 13, 18 through 20, and, and John himself actually points us there. All right, so in chapter 13, verse 21, he says, after saying these things, right, Jesus, and then he continues, Jesus was troubled. And so G John here attaches Jesus' troubled heart and his, his testimony that's to come back to what he just said, all right? And, and so we're going to look there, chapter 13, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You go on to verse 21 just to make the connection. He, he tells us that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, one of you will um, betray me. So, so we get our context from what happened a bit, just a minute ago. Jesus is telling them, hey, this is going to take place because it was foretold in the scriptures. And, and as we kind of transition to get the connection, remember I told you I want to explain the text and I want to get the aim, right? What, is, what are we aiming at? What's the effect? And so, so here we get these two things. Jesus is talking about his betrayal that is to come, and he tells us why he's bringing it up. He tells us why he's bringing it up, and that is in verse 19. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. A few, um, a few weeks ago on a Saturday night, I was watching a, a very important football game, right? And I was sitting on my couch, and because Clemson has beaten the Ohio State Buckeyes, I'm a Buckeyes fan, right? Um, many times, okay? Every time, actually. Um, and it's, it's, it's brutal. But so, so my expectations going to the game were, were to protect myself very low, okay? And so I'm going in, I get my, my girls have all their uh, Buckeye gear on, I've got my Buckeye gear on, we're sitting on the couch, we're taking pictures, and we, you know, we're having fun with it, all right? Um, but then something starts to happen, that the Buckeyes actually are playing good, okay? So the first quarter goes by, the, almost the whole entire second quarter has gone by now, the Buckeyes are up 16 to zero, and they are looking, they're looking like, hey, they, they, they are the better team here. And my, I get my girls tucked into to bed. I come back. I, I'm watching the Clemson gets the football, and we stop them again, right? Our, our, one of our uh, safeties comes crushing through, bursting through the defensive line, sacks the quarterback, right? It is fourth and 23, right? And I'm sitting there going, we're going to win this, right? Like, we're going to get the ball back, and we're going to score another touchdown. So I left the room to go do something. I can't remember what I went to do to get a drink or something like that. And I come back into the room, and they're doing a replay review, okay? They're doing a replay review. And then they come back from the replay review, and they throw our best defense, one of our best defensive players out of the game, and they give Clemson the first down, and then on two plays later, Clemson scores a touchdown, right? And so all this confidence they, they had been building up, it turned on its head in a moment, right? Something unexpected that I was not foreseeing just completely shook my confidence, and I had that, that stomach feeling when you know things have turned not in your good, right? Not, not in favor, right? That stomach that says, this is going to be bad, okay? My worst fears are actually going to be true. My confidence, I was a fool for getting confident because this is going south now, right? Are you with me? This is, the, this is the context here of what we're talking about. Jesus is looking, looking to the future, and he brings up his betrayal, and he says, hey, I'm telling, you, I'm telling you this now so that when it takes place, you are not troubled. Right? I'm, I'm telling you this now so that when it takes place, you believe. Right? You believe that I am he, because I know what's about to come. We see in chapter 13, verse 21, he, he, he is troubled himself. Jesus says, I am troubled in my, I'm troubled in my spirit, right? The disciples, they were completely oblivious. They were, they were confident. They had, they were convinced he was the Messiah. They were, they were foolishly going, hey, who's going to be best, right? This, this kingdom thing is set. Jesus can heal people, right? Jesus can raise people from the dead. Like this kingdom, this kingdom thing is just a matter of time. Which one of us you think is going to be right next to Jesus, Right? That's the kind of conversations they're having. They are, they are confident of what is about to take place, and they are confident in what they know. Jesus knew, hey, in just a moment, this whole thing is going to get thrown upside down. In just a moment, everything that you are confident about will become a great big question mark. And Jesus says, hey, I'm telling you it's to come so that when it comes, you will believe the context is definitely trouble, and they're believing. And we get that a little bit farther. Jesus states it more specifically when he applies this text. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
You see, Jesus, his, his aim in this text is to, sh- is to build up, to fortify the faith and the belief of his disciples. Like, like uh, I've never been in a hurricane, but I hear that they're, they're strong, okay? Um, I've seen videos. And so uh, I, I, I imagine Jesus seeing, the, seeing the, the, the storm that was about to come, like one who kind of fortifies, right, their home on the ocean front with, with plywood over their windows, right? Or, or whatever you do to fortify your home. Jesus here, he, he sees it coming, and he, and he makes a move to, to fortify their faith. This is Jesus' aim. This is what he's trying to uh, accomplish. This aligns with John, right? Remember, John wrote this whole entire book. Why? So that because of hearing the testimony of this book, what you will believe that Jesus is um, the Son of God. Jesus said what he said so that the disciples may entrust themselves to him, fully convinced he is who he claimed to be, and he will do what he promised to do even in the midst of troubling circumstances. This is his aim. What is his strategy? What is Jesus' strategy? How does Jesus go about fortifying faith? Because you see, you and I are like the the disciples. We don't have the the benefit of Jesus' knowledge of what's to come. And so here, Jesus is, Jesus is showing us how he fortified the faith so that when the storm came, they would, they would be rock solid in their conviction of who he was. How does he go about that? What is his, what is his strategy? Um, and to, to get it, we need to look at what Jesus says. And so um, there's kind of three things or three parts of this. Um, number one, the content, right, of what Jesus says. I'm going to first turn your attention to John 13, 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus points our attention to this betrayal by quoting Psalms 41.9. If you're like me, you probably don't have Psalm 41.9 memorized. Um, But these disciples, being well-versed in the Old Testament, would have gotten at least the point. Jesus is saying, hey, someone next to me, somebody close to me, um, Psalms 41.9 says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says, look, I'm going to be um, betrayed. I, I am, it's going to take place in fulfillment of the scriptures. But then what Jesus says kind of advances this along. And second, he says, Jesus revealed that he would be betrayed by one of the 12. Right, so he, he, brings it, he, he heightens the tension in the room. Obviously, Jesus knew a lot of people. We, we know that Jesus had relationships with Mary Magdalene, um, his family. Um, he says of Lazarus, I loved Lazarus, right? And he's one whom I, whom I loved. But Jesus now narrows it down, the scope of all the possibilities of the betrayer, to just that room. Verse 21, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you, one of the people sitting in this room, one whose toes I have just sanitized, right? One of you guys are going to betray me. Third, Jesus goes a little farther, and he says, Jesus, he reveals the, the exact identity of the one. He says, Jesus revealed who of the 12 would betray him. Verses 22 through 26, he says this, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As you, as you can imagine, right, if you had a, your close friends and you're getting to this, this, this moment of climax, and to have the revelation that somebody in the group was a betrayer. Right? The, the, the intrigue, the questions that probably were stirred. And it's interesting to me because Simon is always the one to speak up. But he, he actually, he actually uh, options for silence in this instance. And, and he motions to John, who's sitting uh, to Jesus' right, sitting next to Jesus. And like uh, Ted said last week, remember, we're not sitting at table, right? They're, they're laying on the floor next to each other. And John leans in so closely that some of his weight is now rested upon Jesus himself. And he says, who is it? Jesus responds, and, and we get from the text that it's probably so quietly that only John can hear what he has to say because nobody else gets it. 
He says, it's going to be the one to whom I give this piece of bread. And, and he goes about, and John tells us he, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. You see, in this, in this passage, we see this, this progression of Jesus' knowledge from, from very vague to very precise. I think you see it on the, on the screen. But first he begins with, I will be opposed. I will be opposed by someone close. I will be opposed by one of the 12, and I will be opposed by him, Judas Iscariot. The emphasis for John is on Jesus' knowledge, and it's very important that we understand that the emphasis for John is on the knowledge that Jesus is giving to his disciples. But not only do we see the content, but we see the confirmation of what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 28 through 29 in chapter 13. He says, Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. You see, we, we come to the text with this bias that Judas was this bad guy. But, and so when, as we read through it, even John is making comments like, he's the betrayer, he's the betrayer. But, but what we find in the text is that there's great reason to believe Judas was one of the highly respected ones of the group. He was given the money. He was over, he was over the money. The last thing you do in a group of people is give the money to the guy who's least trusted. That's the last thing you do. Um, scholars believe that Judas is sitting to the, to the left of Jesus, which was a sign in the setting of Passover of a, of a, of a one who was honored and of high rank within the room. Jesus had given him a place. He was sitting amongst the group in a place of honor. Even, even this act of giving him the bread was, was, was part of the ritual that, that, that signified some kind of significance in who he offered it to. You see, Jesus was, Judas was not, in their mind at this time, one who, was, who they were to be skeptical of. What Jesus was revealing to them was completely outlandish. You get this when he gets up and he, and he leaves. The disciples are wondering what in the world. Maybe, maybe Jesus told him to go buy food for the poor. Right? What in the world is going on here? John, John is emphasizing again, Jesus did not get this knowledge because he had a hunch. Jesus did not know what was going to happen because, because he picked up on some, some mannerisms around the table and he knew had some vague idea of being uh, betrayed and he picked up on some things in the room and, and this was an educated guess. John, John is emphasizing here that, that there is knowledge in Jesus that points to something much, much, much greater. And Jesus here we find he, he gives it to him, and he goes, right? Jesus looks at him and says, sorry, verse 27. I got lost there for a second. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You see, the rest of the story has to unfold, but this is John's way of saying it happened. Things were set in motion. The hour was at hand. The betrayer is off to do his betraying. What Jesus said was going to happen is now taking, is now taking place. It was confirmed. So we get his content. He's going to be betrayed. We get the confirmation. It's in motion. Um, what is the conclusion then? What is the conclusion? What is the point? Remember, Jesus said back here, I, I tell you these things so that you may believe. What, I believe that I am he. Right? So what is the conclusion? How do these two things relate? How is this an argument for belief? Um, to see the truth here that Jesus is conveying and John is conveying in the text, we need a quick Old Testament theological lesson. Right? So I've got to give you a quick Old Testament theological um, lesson. My wife will tell you I have no such thing as a quick theological lesson in my repertoire. So bear with me. All right? In Genesis 1-1, we learn that there is one God. Right? One God who spoke all of creation into existence. Right? He even created mankind who was created to know, he was created to display, and he was created to enjoy his creator. Sadly, we read that man, man sinned. Right? Through sin, they fell under the wrath of God, 
And in God's wrath, Romans chapter 1, his wrath is displayed in this, that he, he turned them over to a, a darkened understanding and a dark mind. And so the, the consequence was that they had rejected the truth of God, and now they, now they are enslaved in a darkness in which they do not know God. Right? The result then was this, that they, they began to, they, they do this, they, they worship creation rather than the creator. They worship everything but God, and the result is that there's a, a plethora of gods. Right? We are not monotheistic by nature. We are polytheistic by nature. And so God, God here has created us for worship him to know the one true God. And we as men in our sin, we create false gods. You see, in an act of mercy and grace, God chose Abraham, a worshiper of many false gods, to be of his own. He chose to, God chose to break through the darkness with Abraham and reveal himself to Abraham as the one true and living God. He did this also for Abraham's descendants. So if you remember uh, God, he, he saved Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And what's the first one? Right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, there are no gods besides me. Right? You shall not make any graven images. Why? Because, because there's only one God, and there are no others. Right? He's teaching them that there is one God. If you know the story of the Israelites, though, they had a hard time grasping this, right? They'd worship the one true God. Hey, he's the one true God. And then they would fall back into idolatry, right? Joshua, if you remember, he says, you, you, who, choose this day whom you will serve. And they say, hey, we're going to serve the one true God. Who else would we turn to, right? And then you flip over to the next book, and what are they doing? Right? They're worshiping Baal. And so this is the cycle over and over and over again. But, but what I want to call your attention to is God's argument against their idolatry. You see, God comes multiple times. He says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring, I, I am God, and there is none besides me. There is no other. Right? But then sometimes he tells us what it is about him that is distinct from everybody else. Right? He tells us, hey, there is no other God like me. And when he says like me, he wants, to, he wants you to know how he's comparing people here. Right? He's not saying there's no other God who loves like I do. There's no other God who's just like I am. That's not, the, that's not the comparison he draws between him and false gods. He draws a very distinct one over and over and over again, and it's stated most clearly in Isaiah 46. In Isaiah 46, 1 through 7, God calls out two of these false gods. One is Bel, B-E-L, and one is Nebo. Right? These two false gods the Israelites were familiar with at the time. They were from Babylon. And he emphatically points out their inability to act. He says, hey, these gods are nothing more than burdens on the backs of those who carry them. And then he says, hey, remember this and stand firm. Remember this and stand firm. Verse 8, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then he continues and tells us what is different about him. He says, I am different. I am unique. I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is no other. He tells us what it is. He says this. He says, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. You see, there it is. There's the difference. Unlike any created thing, God can stand at the beginning of time and tell you what is going to take place. You see, he is the only person who can stand in this room and tell you to the exact detail what is going to occur in your life tomorrow. He's it. God draws a line in the sand, and on one side are all created things, including angels, demons, men, women, false gods, everything else. And then on the other side is him. Right? And the dividing line is this. He has the ability to see what's down the road and declare it to you before it ever happens. They know not what tomorrow may bring. That's why we get anxious. Right? God knows no anxiety because he knows what's happening tomorrow. He knows every unexpected mishap, every traffic delay. He knows the timing and destination of every missile that's shot, the speed and the path of every hurricane, the height of every man, the lifespan of every fruit fly, and the number of hairs on your head. He, he knows it. He knows it all. Right? This is impressive. Surely God's knowledge is impressive. But it is unfortunate reality in the church, in, in, in Christian life. Many of us who call ourselves Christians 
right? We, even, even the Christians, I would say, in my life growing up and, and the majority of people that I interact with, we settle and we stop at God's knowledge. But you see, God's knowledge is built upon another truth, a more foundational truth about God on which his knowledge stands. He, he, deli- he derives, he, his knowledge originates somewhere, I mean, it's an impressive thing to know everything, right? I mean, I sit around with my kids, right? And I ask them a question and they know the answer and I'm impressed, okay? God knows, God knows everything. But that knowledge is rooted in something even more glorious and more astounding. And he tells us um, what it is. Turn your attention to verse 10 and 11 with me in Isaiah 46. It should be on the screen declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, here's how it is. Here's how I do it. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from afar, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. You see, God's knowledge is rooted in his ability to plan and have a will, and then he alone can bring it into existence independent of anybody else. You see, I have plans for tomorrow. I've got a Google Calendar. I'm weird. I, if I was me, I'd plan out by 15-minute increments my whole entire day. That's just me, okay? I'm weird. My wife can't stand that. She doesn't plan any of it. I'm just kidding. Um, and so we... Sorry, man. I love you. Um, we... We, that, that's me, right? But here's what's the problem with planning. I, I, I plan my week, and I, it never goes the way that I planned it, right? Never. God is not like me. See? God says, I can declare to you what's going to happen tomorrow because I have, I, have, I have counseled with the Holy Trinity, and we have decided what is pleasing to us, and we have a plan to execute and accomplish it down to the very detail of what it's going, to ta- it's going to take. And I am powerful and capable and free enough to make sure that not one ounce of it. When we get to the end of time, we're not going to just get some resemblance of what God intended. We're going to get exactly the fullness of everything that he desired to be at the end to be there. See, God says, I know, I can declare, I can can tell you things not yet done because I have the power to bring all those things into existence, all those things into unity, and I can accomplish all of those things. You see, his knowledge is rooted in his absolute, supreme, sovereign authority. Hopefully the point of our text in John 13 is becoming increasingly clear. Jesus was not simply making sure we knew that he was aware of what was going on. He was laying a foundation on which his deity could be confirmed. The people were to discern false gods from the true God on the truthfulness of his declarations. In this moment, Jesus is drawing the line in the sand. He's putting the proof the, the, the great test out there, and he's saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to take place so that when it takes place, you will be convinced I am he, because I can declare it, and I am making it happen. I'm making it happen. We see that the disciples learned this lesson. In verse 116 of, of Acts, Peter is preaching, and he says, not preaching, he's addressing the disciples as they wait for a Pentecost, and he says this, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. Peter reiterated, hey, look, this Judas thing which caught us all off guard. It had to happen because it was in fulfillment of the word of God, which was spoken here, and God's word does not fail. Number three in my, in my things here, so we wanted to see what Jesus said. We wanted to kind of um, see what his strategy was, and I just want to attempt to persuade you. I need at this point to be very clear about what I'm claiming. I'm claiming that Jesus, being God, is able to know the future because he has planned it according to his will, and he is working in all things to accomplish it without defect, okay? That's a mouthful, right? That's what we believe about our God, and, and my, my, as a preacher, my burden is to, uh, to uh, to persuade you of these realities, right? 
And so one of the things I want to do is just simply say what I don't mean, all right, to kind of help you understand where, what, what, what it is that is being said. I do not mean that God simply assures us that things will work out. See, God does not come to me and you and say, hey, I, I, I'm sitting back, I'm, I'm, I'm watching and I'm waiting, don't fret, I know everything that's going on, and don't fear, whatever mess is made down here, I'm going to work it out in the end. God is not to be seen as somebody who is simply tasked with picking up the pieces and putting them back together. God is not to be uh, seen as the one who shows up after the wound has been made, right, to heal and to mend. But if we take a biblical view, a biblical understanding of God's role in the daily events of things, it is he who crushes us. It is he who often wounds it is he who breaks. You see, it's one thing to think about this God who, who is distant, but who promises to show up at the last minute, right? We sing those songs all the time, like he's an on-time God, right? Which I get what they're saying, right? But part of me is just like, he's been there the whole time, right? <laughs> In the scriptures, their, their understanding of God was not that he was going to show up from not being involved to saving the day but that he is right now working in every detail of your life to accomplish his purpose. We see that in the scriptures um, very, very often. I'm going to give you a few instances of this. If you remember in the Old Testament, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but the Israelites found themselves down in Egypt. There was a famine that God sent. They wound up down in Egypt, and for a long time, they lived in favor with the Egyptians. Egyptians were good, but when you flip over to uh, 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 wow, Exodus. I thought of Ephesians. That's not right. Exodus chapter 1, it says that there arose a Pharaoh who remembered not Joseph. Right? What we learn is that that Pharaoh was hard towards the people of God. The Egyptians turned hostile towards the Israelites. So as you're reading the story, man, as things are unfolding, you see this new king and you see all these things changing. But then if we flip to Psalm chapter 105, the, the psalmist is praising God for his, history, his work in history of the Israelites, and we get this explanation of a king and a people who seem to all of a sudden turn against the Israelites. Here is what the psalmist tells us. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts, their hearts being the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. That's a different commentary than we like to have on our lives a lot of time, right? When I get someone, when someone opposes me, right? Like that would not be what, that's not the song I'm singing. This is, this is the God-centered explanation of the events that are occurring. Notice Job. We all know the story of Job, uh, 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 most of us at least, um, Job was experienced much affliction. Satan's involved, people are involved, storms are involved. Everything in Job's wealthy life is down to nothing. Right? Here is Job's confession. Job 1, 21 through 22, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with the wrong. Some more bad things happened to Job, including his health. And he comes back at the end of verse chapter 2. He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. This is his wife. <laughs> Don't talk to your wife like that. Um, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Evil there being disaster. Job 42, 11, at the very end of the book, you get kind of this summary statement. Then came, to, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him. Here's why they comforted him. For all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says it himself very plainly. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos says it like this. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
Lamentations. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? See, I don't want to, I don't want to, this raises questions, right? But what I want to, what I have to tell you, what I have to put before you is, is, is that in the scriptures, the people of God looked beyond what they saw and beyond what they experienced, and they received it from God. They looked beyond what was going on. When, when trouble came, they looked beyond their circumstances, and they saw God doing a work in it. So much so, right? as they watched its purposes and its things unfold, they looked to him, and they received it from his hand. I could give you passage after passage after passage. Um, one of the ones that just, just God brought to me over the last year was, was a text in Psalms where, where David is saying, hey, they, my enemies surround me. They, they talk about me. They, I hear the chattering everywhere. I, I'm torn. My heart is heavy. I'm broken. But then he says something weird. He takes all of that and he, he says, God, your affliction You see, there, there, is a, there is a difference between what I often saw in my own life and what I often see in the church and what I see in the scriptures, and that is there, there is an ability in the people of God to take what comes their way as from here, as from here. I don't have time. I was telling uh, uh, Robert, that today I feel like I, you're impressed because you, say, you throw something out like that. And right, you, you, my heart right, pushes back against that. Our culture rejects that. We, 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 it, it's difficult. And there's, and so I'm just going to just throw out three things here and acknowledge they're there, right? And, and, and encourage you that the Scripture answers those things. Right? And then I just want to apply the text really quickly. There are three, three things in this text that make seeing difficulty like a betrayal of Judas, as part of and under the sovereign rule of God. The first is the horrendousness of what was happening. It was bad. It was a dark, it was a dark night. Our world has some horrendous things in it. Some of them involve human activity. Some of them are just natural disasters. Some of them involve both, like the Australia wildfires, right? Some things are so horrendous, it's hard. How do, how do we put a good, loving God in the context and relate him to events that have horrendous, horrendous, terrible, evil, painful consequences? If he's a good, loving, all-powerful God, and he's there, and he's active, and he's a part, why didn't he stop it? Right? It's hard to see beyond the circumstances to a God who is sovereign because a lot of times our experience is how, how, do, you, how do you point people to see God behind death? Number two, the power of Satan. So in here, Satan is, is doing his thing and, and, and Satan is active and Satan is involved. And how, how, do I, how do I see how God's work and Satan's work play out in the activity of Judas? That's a, that's a big question. I think of Satan over here and Jesus over here and them at war with one another and which they are, right? But here I get this picture, and in, in a passage like Colossians, I get this understanding that God is, God is above all these things. Right? How? The actions of man. Okay, so if Judas had to do this, if it must be, because the scriptures foretold it, how then is Judas responsible? See, it's hard for us to go beyond the circumstances to see a God and receive. How, how can we say, hey, you're, you're afflicting me when I'm being afflicted by this person over here? Without compromising human responsibility, without, without just completely downplaying Satan's evilness and power, and without doing injustice to the horrendousness of what we know as life. How do we do that? Jesus tells us about the horror and the horrendousness of your life. It is not worth to be compared to the glory of what he is doing. He tells us about Satan that he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he tells us that Judas himself was held accountable 
it would be worse for him. It would have been better off him not been born. He's like, Daniel, you're not helping me here. What I need you to understand is that when we come to the scriptures, I have to ask the question, is this what the scriptures teach? And I must submit myself under. See, the beginning of knowledge and understanding and wisdom comes from acknowledging that God says, hey, this is who I am and this is what I do and this is how I exist. This is what is true about me and I bow my knee to that before I ask him questions about how it all works out. It puts me in a place of humility. Puts me in a place of humility. Answering all those philosophical questions are for another day. But I'm convinced the scriptures teach me that God is actively and powerfully working all things, even the events of his death, for my good and for his glory. And so I want to instruct you just with a few things before we pray. Number one, if you believe that he is he, he is Yahweh, the one in charge, you and I ought to be comforted. The claws of Satan are but a scalpel in the hand of God. You see, what Satan uses to it with, what Satan uses with intent to rend, destroy, and kill, God yields, uses to heal, restore, and mend. We see this in the story of Joseph. He says, "My brothers meant it for evil, harm, but God meant it for good." You see, I don't, I don't understand it all. God is way bigger than I am. I haven't figured him out yet. But I'm telling you that when the circumstances rock your world, if he hasn't rocked your world yet, it's coming. We we and you are just like those disciples. We are sitting there and we cannot see the trouble that is ahead, but trouble is trouble is coming. We as a church, right, we, there's, there's this excitement, at least there is in me, right, there is in the, the pastors and the staff, like, we've got this, we've got kind of a new, a new period in the life of the church, and there's lots to be excited about, a lot of comments, let me tell you something, as, as we press forward to where God has us to be, guess what, there's going to be a lot of obstacles, and there's going to be a lot of challenges, and things that we thought we were certain about are going to get shaken and pulled out from under us, there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be challenges, there's going to be things that are unexpected. But you and I can be comforted. Number two, we need to be, we can be honest. We can be honest. The last year, this past week, marked probably the hardest year of my entire, at least ministry, maybe life. There, there was, there was times when all you could do was just Get, get down and cry. I, I remember just, just collapsing after taking a phone call on the floor in my bedroom. I am so thankful. See, sometimes in this, in this world in which we hold God's sovereignty way up here, there's no room for weakness. I'll get over it. God is sovereign. You should be strong. Where's your faith? One of the greatest things he taught me in the last 15 months was to be able to get before a God who cares. I'm afflicted. I'm weak. I am I'm broken. I don't see how it's working out. I, I, don't, I don't want to go another day. Right? One of the greatest byproducts of that was, when, as a pastor, God taught me to feel the pain of people. I don't know what it's like to lose uh, an infant child, but I know people in our church do. I don't know what it's like to lose a parent, but I know people in our, in our church do. I don't know what it's like to, to have the doctor come back and tell me I've got some disease that's probably going to take my life. But I know people who do. And I'm telling you, I know what it's like to be right there and go, God, I know you're sovereign. 
God, I know you're in control, and God, I know you're, you're running all these circumstances, but I got to tell you, I'm broken. Church, as we, as we move forward, there's going to be obstacles. There's gonna, in your personal life, in, in ministry, and I'm here to tell you that if we in our pride buck up and we can't say that, hey, we're broken and we are weak and we're messed up, God help us. And I'm so thankful I can run to my God and say, God, I need you. Number three, we need to be gentle and self-controlled. I'm going to cut it short. I had six instructions. I'm going to give you three, okay? I'm like Peter, right? What do you mean there's going to be war, God? I'm going to run off, and I'm going to fight, right? You know, Peter here in the next section, he says what? He says, I, I will die for you, right? The understanding there is Jesus, Peter's thinking Jesus is ready to set this thing up, and Peter's saying, my life for the cause, right? Let's do this. We understand that because when he goes to the garden of sin, what does Peter do? He chops off the ear of one of the guards. God says, be gentle and be self-controlled. Because Peter, you have a tendency to act and to speak as if you understand what's going on. I just can't imagine that room. They, did, they had no idea what Satan was up to. They had no idea what God was up to. We need to be really careful because when things happen, they press us, they, they pull the rug out from under us. We are, we are often quick to speak and quick to act because we're quick to judge the circumstance. We are presumptuous in our understanding and we, and we run off to do. But because God is sovereign, he's in control, and he's got this thing figured out, and he is moving it forward towards his glory and our good, you know what I can do? I can, I can be peaceful. I can be at rest, and I can do what Peter instructs us to do in his letter, and I'll close. But even if you should suffer for righteousness tonight, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Well, this is real right here, right? It's real in the home. It's real at work. Right? Quick to judge this person. Quick to judge that thing. Quick to prescribe what needs to take place. Now, the sovereignty of God allows me to sit back. It allows me not to be presumptuous. and allows me to love gently because he's got it and it don't have to be me. We are going to ask the band to come back up for a time of worship. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I've asked Robert to kind of lead us in a, a time of a, a prayer, a concentrated time of prayer. Because we know you're troubled, right? I'm troubled. I, I, we, it's, it's part of the world that we, in which we live. And we can either ignore it or we can get before God and we can ask him for his help. And so the band is going to lead us in part of a song and then Robert's going to come. He's going to lead us in prayer.